Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Searching for Political Identity. It is your lovely and favorite host here, Brian Escal. Today's date is August 15th. The time is just about 5 p.m. And I'm publishing an interview I literally just recorded with a really amazing immigration lawyer named Hillary Walsh. The interview will speak for itself. You'll learn all about her. But um, it was a great conversation. And you can check out her website at newfrontier.us. Let me make sure I have that correct. Yes, I do. Newfrontier.us. Now, the last thing I'll say about this episode is she sounds great. Her audio quality is perfect. For some reason, mine sounds like crap. So... I'm recording this intro after the fact. It sounds beautiful, but for some reason, the, uh, the program that I use, I don't use Zoom. I use Squadcast, and it fricked up this time. So apologize for my voice on the recording, but it shouldn't be a problem. So enjoy, and let me know what you think on Twitter. Follow me at Brian Escal. Thanks, y'all. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. So let me read a quick second of your introduction because it's really informative. Hillary Walsh is a former foster care and juvie kid turned lawyer. You help immigrants live free in the United States. Let's pause there. What does that mean? What does living free mean? When you don't have your papers, you're not living free, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And if your mom and dad don't have their papers, they're not living free. I want you to be able to travel in and out of the U.S. Just being undocumented primarily um, is, is how I help people live free, get them their papers. Awesome. Come out of the shadows. Come out of the shadows. Well, sometimes right. a lot of people are very much in the spotlight and they don't have papers. Even like our uh, young people who have DACA. Um, I say young people, but sometimes they're our age. So I don't know if we get to lump ourselves in with young people anymore. But in any event, you don't, you're not living completely free if you can't um, travel outside the United States whenever you want to, in my opinion. I think that... I have to agree with you. In, in most of the world... Um, the right to travel is a human right. And when you don't have papers that allow you to travel in and out of the United States, there's a level of freedom that I don't think is true freedom. Well, that makes sense. You've answered it. Thank you for that. So you grew up as a juvie kid. You turned into a lawyer. You've started this firm, New Frontier. You're an adjunct law professor also, mother of four, military wife, of course, the Phoenix Suns fan. We have to throw in a sports thing to let us know you're human. That's cool. So you've had a lot of experience. You've argued in front of all the courts up to the Supreme Court. Yeah. I've never orally argued at the Supreme Court, but I've repped clients theirs there. So I guess we should start chronologically. And I wrote one, really one important question down for you. Well, I wrote more than one, but one important one, I think. And that is, in what ways did your experience as a youth impact the work you're doing? Clearly it has. Yeah. I'm curious. So I I always want to be sure that I clarify this. I'm fortunate in that I did not grow up in foster care. Having if when I talk to people who've grown up in foster care, their experience is very different than mine. I was put in foster care because I was a victim of child abuse as a kid and at one point in time the state got involved and I was put in foster care and then was not following the rules and got put into lockup for naughty teenagers even though I had never done drugs, had sex, or really even listened to rock and roll. So I was like the misfit juvie kid. And I got to learn all sorts of things. It was quite the education. Um, But my experience, (laughs) there is a song, uh, you may remember this um, from, it's inappropriate, but there's, I want to lick, 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 lick you from your head to your toes. I had never heard 
anything like that in my life, having, having grown up in a very um, conservative Baptist home. And so I got to learn all sorts of things in, in a new upbringing, you know, so it was a whole new world for me, but I will never forget that song because I remember where I was the first time I heard it. And I was like, I want to be part of this. <laughs> Oddly. I have a memory of hearing that song too. Like it was shocking. It must've been 20 years ago. Yes. And I remember the person's house. Oh, that just an interesting song. Yeah, uh, it is. It was shocking at the time. Um, and I, I imagine that if it were put out today, it wouldn't be nearly as shocking, but it was kind of like revolutionizing I, right. I'm guessing, but I hadn't listened to hip hop or anything else. The only hip hop I had really known about was like the fresh Prince, you know, so nothing, right. clean nothing cut. Really exciting. yeah, the clean cut. So my experience, um, going to court when I, you know, we are, we're working people, um, in my family. So we didn't have a bunch of doctors and lawyers hanging around. So going to court was a really big deal right after you're re, um, seeing your parents for the first time after you've been taken out of the home. And it was a big deal in my family for all of this to be going down a big black mark on our family's reputation in our little small town in Kansas. Mm. And then to walk into the, the family courthouse and see mom and dad there with their lawyer. And there was a guy there in a navy blue suit, similar to what I'm wearing today. And he told the judge I was ready to be reunified with my parents, even though I was really scared. I hadn't been through any counseling. We hadn't even had really a conversation and we were about to get reunified and come to find out that guy in the blue suit was my lawyer, my state appointed lawyer. And I think that really laid the foundation for me getting to represent undocumented immigrants or people with lots and lots of documents, but they don't have authorization to be in the country because I get to go be the lawyer in the blue suit, but I bridge the gap. So people who don't know what's going on, they don't know what the process is. My great pleasure is to explain what the process is. Sometimes it's not what they want to hear, but to give them give them authority back in their life where they feel like they have someone who's really on their side. Mm. So that's that's meaningful. I mean, that's a powerful story and it ties into in some way, maybe what's going on with the migrant protection protocols program. I mean, I'm hoping you can educate me. The question I have is how should we feel? How should the average American feel about um, that? Which is, is it fair to say that's the family separation policy, uh, Trump's? And, so, and, and how does yeah. this tie into human rights and wanting to protect that, that child that you were back in, the, in, in a different circumstance, but wanting not to traumatize kids, to do the right thing for kids. How should, while obviously having a balance, having a border, how should we feel about uh, that whole border policy? So the MPP program actually just kept everybody in Mexico. So it, it wasn't really the family separation. At the same time, there was also a separate policy where we were separating families purposely. And on over the weekend, maybe it was even last week, there was a long Atlantic article, all Atlantic articles are quite long, um, talking specifically about how the Trump administration's DHS made a plan to purposely separate and prosecute parents. So they were using the children as a, as a bargaining chip and really as leverage to sign your immigration papers and self-deport because that would mean you were reunified faster with your kid. Meanwhile, the kids are in some other state oftentimes 
in hysterics. And you read the article and you hear the quotes. And one of the quotes that really stood out in my mind as a mom was that the children were inconsolable. It wasn't just tears. It was screams. And I think about my little kids in that kind of environment, and I can't really imagine doing it. So when I, when I think about the average American, meanwhile, the media was portraying and really questioning what kind of parent would throw their kid over a wall that was happening, at least here in Arizona, and what kind of parent would, would subject their children to something like this. If we go back a little bit before this family separation policy was implemented, you never heard of the U.S. government separating children from their parents, especially if there if there were the mom and dad or like two parents and a child. The child would always stay with one parent, usually while the male parent would be taken into ICE custody. But mom and child would be allowed to enter and stay together. But one of the strategies of that Trump administration was to really shell shock people and to deter them from coming to the U.S. to seek asylum. My opinion, I think the average American's opinion on this would be we shouldn't use children as bargaining chips because that's messed up. Like there's just no two ways about it. Yep, it, it is. You're not going to find me defending that. I will say, though, well, I, I will ask you um, as an expert in this field, was it effective? I mean, did it, was there any positive? It's a sick question, but is there any justification? Um, so all is fair in love and war, right? So from a, from a national security perspective, it, you know, that's where we have to balance the conversation about are some of the risks worth some of the rewards? We do that in law. We do that in medicine. We do that throughout any any data and science uh, science based research. And the answer is no. We know that it's no because we continue to have it's seasonal. Um, people come to the U.S. border to seek asylum usually seasonally. It's like. Um, Starbucks, you know that the line around a Starbucks is going to be long at 7 a.m. and much shorter at 7 p.m. So we know that the U.S. border is going to have folks coming to it to seek asylum at high peak times because we have that historic data. That data has not changed whatsoever. What we have seen, though, is an increase, and this has been most recent, we saw in El Paso where you open this big semi-truck and you have folks who have been baked to death in the back of a truck. And I mean, is any loss of life justifiable? I, I mean, boy, this gets into like a philosophical question and I'm certainly not equipped to answer that. But when we don't have any hard data showing that statistically the risk is worth the reward that these are criminals or people who are threats to our national security who are entering with their children, I do not believe that it is justifiable. Thank you for that. Makes sense to me. So then for me, the next question is, wh what would you recommend to the hardcore conservative who wants to shore up the border? What is the best policy? What should we be doing? Man, every time I hear shore up, I always think of Sarah Palin. I feel like she made that, oh, no. that phrase so famous. Oh, and <laughs> Oh, no, it's okay. I just remember her saying it. And I was like, what does shore up mean? Um, I'm from Kansas, so we didn't have a lot of shores to shore up. But anyway, I digress. 
from a national security perspective, if that's what we're concerned about, asylum seekers are not bringing in uh, any any threat to national security. And we go through a really rigorous process when we remove all the different things that the Trump administration had to implement. I think Title 42, when we didn't, I mean, you want to look at a human rights perspective. I represent people who are detained here in Arizona in ICE custody. These are in former, one of them's in a former federal prison that they're repackaging and turning back into another federal prison. When the pandemic was at its worst, you know, you, you have to look at, am I going to keep this person locked up and possibly die through COVID? Or am I going to release them into the wild, into the United States and just hope they come back? Or do I tell them all, you guys got to hang out and wait in Mexico until we figure it out here. And I think those are decisions that had to be made and they were made by the Trump administration. That's not, it's not nearly the issue that it was then as what we have now. So what I tell hardcore conservatives and my mom and dad are two of those people is that we hear a lot of concern about national security and our borders being very porous. This is not a new issue. This has been going on since the 50s, the 40s, the 30s. And only in probably a 1995 post-Bill Clinton administration era have we become increasingly concerned with alleged national security issues at the border. Most people who bring national security problems to the U.S. come through ports of entry like JFK. They're entering the country legally, not illegally. Interesting. So was Trump totally, I mean, we know Trump is a generally full of it guy. I mean, and, and I would say that to someone's face who's a Trump supporter. I mean, come on. But was he totally full of it when he came down the escalator in 2015 or 16, whenever it was, and made his famous statements, they're sending their criminals and rapists, whatever. Was he just feeding into a, he sounds like he was just feeding into a false narrative. Is that what you think? No, I think that everything that President Trump says has an element of enough of truth to it. That's why it becomes believable and you scratch your head. Um, anytime we have some, I, I mean, I think this might be true for, for any of us who are in a, an advocacy lifestyle, right? There has to be an element of truth to everything we say or otherwise none of what we say is believable. So I'm not saying that all lawyers or anybody else are on the same level as um, former President Trump, but... When we look at what we have in Honduras and Guatemala and Mexico in terms of gang violence, we know that we planted those gangs there when we deported them from LA. These were widely, and this is not, this is not me making this up. This is like commonly, commonly known, I would say, mm. in that these were gang members in LA and Southern California and they took their gangs with them. They found a way to survive and to thrive in their home country where we had deported them to. So these are also people who want to come back because, you know, gang members have family members in the United States too. And they've got kids here that they want to be reunified with. And mm. you have the teardrop tattooed on your face and your kid who you love in your heart in LA, you want to come back. Um, so there are bad people who want to re-enter the United States, people we who we have deported 
who have done heinous crimes in the U.S. who want to come back. And man, I would much rather, I'm going to get all fired up because my arm hair is standing up. I would much rather use the resources we have to make sure those folks who are not legally allowed to be here are prosecuted and captured and caught and not just slipping through the border rather than a mom and her five-year-old child at the border who were getting, that mom was getting prosecuted and her child was taken into U.S. custody. We only have so many dollars to spend. I want to use them on the bad guys. Mm, I see. Mm. Yeah. Don't you? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So to explain to the typical Trump supporter then, why we should allow these non-bad guy illegal immigrants, if that's the right word, if those are the right words, in, why should we want, why should Americans want this influx of illegal immigration? Should we call it that? Yeah. So illegal immigration, I want to unpack that a little bit if that's okay. Um, coming to the U.S., we, we signed off on human rights conventions that say that we will allow people to seek asylum in the United States. And this was born out of everything that happened with the Holocaust. Like this was, this is where this goes back to in time, where if you're fleeing really gnarly things going on in your home country, the U.S. will allow you to come here to seek asylum, to seek refuge, to seek sanctuary. It's actually not illegal to cross the border unless we create a criminal statute for it. It's not illegal to cross the U.S. and ask for asylum. It's not illegal for immigration purposes. It's actually a very expected way. If I'm fleeing violence in Mexico, let's say because I'm a woman, or let's say because I'm a gay woman and I have been attempted to be raped straight, which many of my clients have been. Mm. Okay? Can you imagine? No. I'm going to get raped straight, so I'm coming to the U.S., would it be more or less credible for me to stand in line at the gate and be told no to get raped by the guys who are waiting for me, who are cartel members waiting for me on the southern side of the border, or would it be more credible for me to hop the border and as soon as I'm apprehended by CBP, by Border Patrol, say, do not send me back. I have been raped. It's because I'm a female and I'm gay. Mm. Which one is more credible? The latter. The latter. And that's why in U.S. immigration law, we do not in any way regard entering without permission to seek asylum as illegal. It's because it actually really supports the the fear that you have of, of your home country. Mm-hmm. Um, people, lots of people are here to seek asylum. Um, people who are hardcore Trump supporters or just think that perhaps the asylum process is being abused. Again, I go back to what is the American value I want to uphold? Um, I've never served my country in a military sense. I've gotten to do that as a military spouse for the past 17, 18 years. And I think what's the value that I want my legacy as a military spouse, the legacy I want my husband to be able to enjoy. What's the vision and values that I want my country to uphold? And I would much rather say there's going to be people who abuse any process. We look at like in the U.S., welfare. Everybody always bags on everybody on welfare. Someone's abusing the process. 
hey, I got employees who they have resigned and then they claim they were fired so they can get workers. Um, what's it called when you're fired from a job? You get you get employment, um, unemployment, right? Unemployment, right? Like there's abuse of process all the time. Yeah. Mm. True. It is True. just it's part of doing business when you're when you're the best country in the world. Mm. That's a fair point. <clears throat> That's uh, certainly something for conservatives to chew on, I think, because you're going to have a trade off either way. And you're saying err on the side of human rights and America being a great place. And I think from an economic perspective, you know, we're missing about 3 million immigrant workers in the U.S. right now, in part due to all these different programs that the Trump administration implemented, keeping asylum seekers out of this country and in Mexico waiting and living in tent cities. Those, had they been allowed in under normal circumstances like we've had for the past 30 years, those would be people who would have work authorization, would be working and paying taxes. And right now we do not have enough workers in the United States, particularly in the services industry, or you look at like the truck driving industry. Oh my goodness, we need truck drivers. Um, these are workers who would be able to benefit our economy, but are instead not only like you look at it from a human rights perspective. Yes, that gets me in the heart. You look at this from a fiscal economics perspective that hits you in the wallet and in your, your daily comforts that, you know, I want my Amazon stuff to be delivered at a certain time. Amazon can't keep enough workers. We have, and I guess, workers I guess Ameri and I guess American citizens are not taking those jobs. Well, it, it may not really be that American citizens aren't taking the jobs. We are just a country that is used to a lot of influx of immigrant workers, even from a tech perspective. Um, you know, 23 to 30% of our tech force in the United States is foreign immigrants working here on work visas. So all in all, we have a high demand for immigrant workers. Right. And who, I mean, I'll just speak for myself now. I mean, immigration, it's like the lifeblood of the country, right? I love the idea of, uh, I read this in a book called Accidental Superpower. So it's not my, it's not my original thought, but this is the easiest way for me to think about this. He talks about how you can't make more 21 year olds. So China is never going to surpass the U.S. economically or in a superpower sense because they're at such a huge deficit because of their one child policy, one pregnancy policy that they had for so many years. The US, we don't have to pump out that many 21 year olds because we have so many who are being raised. And you think about how many millions and billions of dollars we spend on educating kids K through 12. Other countries are doing that. And then we have all these 21 year olds immigrating to the United States, ready to work, ready to pay taxes, ready to contribute to our economy. Mm -hmm. This is a secret superpower that we have here in the U.S. Hmm. So I guess the average Trump supporter is just, are they ignorant on the issue of immigration, misguided? They must be, ultimately. Someone's got to be right and someone's got to be wrong on this matter. It sounds like the Trump view is not a smart policy. I don't want to be why, right. Why, I, yeah. 
if I can, thank you. I don't want to be right. And I, and I don't want to make a Trump voter or, and you know, I don't actually think there are that many Trump voters out there. I think that there's a lot of never Trump voters out there. Um, I think there's a lot of people who identify, um, with a very conservative, conservative immigration reform. I don't want to be right. I want to be effective. And I know what's best for our country from an economics perspective and from a human rights perspective. Both of those things support immigration reform and allowing immigrants to help our country continue to be the greatest nation in the world. So what does immigration reform look like? Is there a simple ABC piece of legislation that should be passed? The number one thing, if I could go at our immigration laws with a sledgehammer and really do some reform, would be to remove the bars, the unlawful presence bars. So these are not the fun bars that you and I go to on Friday night. These are actually the bars that, like, like think of a prison uh, bar. They're not the fun ones. So if you're in the U.S. for a certain amount of time without permission and you leave, you're banned from the country for 3 to 10 to 20 or permanently. And there's very few ways for you to overcome that if you don't have a spouse or a parent who has status here, so a green card holder or a U.S. citizen. The problem with that is, you know, if you're 45 years old, you came to the U.S. when you were a kid, back when it was very common to come, work in, a Cal- work in California for a little while and earn some money and then go back home, but you decided you were going to stay. You met a woman you have a kid, the kid's 25 years old, U.S. citizen. There is no way for you to fix your status in the U.S. because as soon as you leave to go fix your papers in Mexico, you're banned for 10 years. So we have created such a disincentive, you know, I'm not going to leave my family to go fix my papers. I'm just going to stay undocumented. So we've created Mm -hmm. such disincentive to follow the rules because the rules have become unfollowable. And so I would say, let's get rid of the bars. Let's, yes, people need, we need to have rules and we are a country built on the rule of law, but it can't be so impossible to follow the rules that you have to leave the country for 10 years. That's just not going to happen. Well, it sounds like a big issue. I guess one question I have is in your mind, would it be reasonable to say, hey, if a comprehensive immigration reform bill gets done, should it fix the problems we have and then say, okay, and in, in the future, you know, it'll be done differently? Should there be a, I guess it's a complicated question. I'm just wondering if, if you think there needs to be a one-time fix and then different rules going forward, or if you should just do the, remove the bars and kind of just keep it that way. I would weird question. Yeah, I I don't, you know, transition rules are really complicated and immigration law has a lot of transition rules. And so then, you know, as you look back in in history, you have to kind of go through almost a rubric to find the answer. And for me, I think that it's important from a from a legal perspective to make the rules consistent and followable. Um, because a lot of folks are getting their information secondhand from a neighbor or a friend. And then, you know, you see them act on it and they're trying in good faith to do it right, but then they've screwed it up somehow and they, they live a life of that consequence. Transition rules get, get muddy for that reason. But I think if we just say we're removing the unlawful present 
unlawful presence bar. And if you do, you know, forever, like for the, for the foregoing future, get your appointment booked in Ciudad Juarez. So you can go get your green card and go about this, the air quote legal way. This is, this would open up so much freedom for people living in the U S who have a kid who is a U.S. citizen. And these are good people. I mean, 99% of the people you're talking about are good people, right? These are good people. Most of the, my clients, I mean, not to minimize DUI, you know, my mom was uh, hit by a drunk driver and nearly killed. I'm not, so I'm not minimizing DUI, but in the grand scheme of all the things that we can do that are heinous, um, you know, a DUI is the most common thing that gets my clients in trouble. And in part, um, you know, Arizona has a zero tolerance, so you can, you can have some NyQuil and drive and you can get a DUI. So, I mean, mm. uh, again, never justifying it, but just looking at the facts, I think that these, and I'm not saying that we change the discretion component. Every green card applicant, they have to show that they're a person of good moral character. They have to show that they, they deserve to be able to get a green card. I'm just saying, let them go about the process without having to spend 10 years outside the country. Mm. So it sounds like you want to invert the scheme that Trump set up, which was to make it very difficult and disincentivize it. And uh, you're saying, no, 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 make it easy and focus the money, the limited money that we have on going after bad guys. That's a more, that's a better idea. In terms of border security and the influx of people who are at the border, yes. In terms of, well, I mean, and Trump was even saying it doesn't matter if, um, it doesn't matter if you've been here for 45 years and you have no criminal history. You ain't got papers. You ain't got a place here in this country. Meanwhile, there's someone who like is a known terrorist who's lumped in the same, who's in the same line to get deported. Everybody was prosecuted. Everybody was a priority um, rather than the bad guys being a priority, which is something that President Obama had emphasized. So um, what I think and what I believe in is when when the machine is so broken, we have to fix the machine. We can't say that the cogs aren't working. We have to say that the machine is broken. It must be fixed. Mm. Got it. Last question for you, because I have to be mindful of your time, but how should, how should um, immigration, immigrant activists feel about Obama, President Obama's um, policies? Was he a good president for immigration? or bad? How should people feel about him? You know, he deported a lot of people. And, um, you know, coming from a military spouse, my husband's an F-16 pilot and former unmanned aerial vehicle pilot. And, you know, President Obama killed a lot of people overseas, you, you know, using unmanned aerial vehicles. So we think about um, conservative versus liberal or whatever the, whatever the social construct for politics is of the day. And sometimes the numbers surprise us. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good place to leave it, I guess, because it makes us think, hey, and that's what my show's about. It's trying to get beyond the labels right to the heart of the issue. And so that's an interesting one. You know, it seems like two successive presidents um, from different parties, may, neither of them may have had the, uh, the activists on their side on this one. Very interesting. I think the best thing that Obama did for immigrants was to create DACA and that's for deferred action for childhood arrivals. And 
these are young people who were brought to the U.S. before they were, um, you know, middle-aged teenagers. So, you know, they, they came to the U.S. before they were 15, 16 years old, and they haven't left. These are kids who stood like you and I did, pledged allegiance to the flag as little kids, and all but for a piece of paper believed they were U.S. citizens. But then when it was time for them to go to college or get a job after high school, they didn't have social security numbers. So they, they can't work. Mm -hmm. They can't go to college. So think of the billions of dollars that we're investing in these young people only to send them out into the wild and they can't provide for themselves or their family. They literally have to go into the shadows. And Obama created this program that allows those young people, assuming they have basically no criminal history, to get a social security number, which allows them to have work authorization. And that, I think, was the greatest gift to immigrants that, that President Obama gave. Well, that's nice. You know, I'm, uh, I'm Jewish, uh, so when it comes to immigration and all that seeking sanctuary, I'm pretty sensitive to it, and I love this country, and I just want to thank you for doing what you're doing. It's, in, it's inspiring. It's uplifting. i got to read a lot more into it, but thank you for educating me a little bit. Let me, where should I read more about this? Is there any uh, places you recommend? We'll just follow you know, the news closely. I I have a podcast that we're launching called Immigration Law Made Easy, and we talk about immigration law in what I hope is a simple enough way. And it's it's great for people who want to know more about what are we talking about? Why why are we talking about bad hombres at the border and, you know, shithole countries and like what does all of this mean? And that I think is a great place to read about. Um, and we have an active YouTube channel just trying to help people understand exactly what your show is trying to do, which is let's put aside the rhetoric and actually have a conversation about real people and real problems. Amen. I mean, we could just leave it there. Absolutely perfect. That's great. I'm, I don't listen to podcasts, which is kind of funny. I mean, I'm not a podcast guy. I have one, but I just don't. But I am, I'm really going to check that out because that sounds perfect. I mean, very niche, you know, niche, niche, however you say it, uh, very tailored. Um, immigration law made easy. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You've given me a lot in this half hour, so can't thank you enough. And I hope uh, we can keep the lines open and maybe do another episode down the line. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks again. Have a great day. Yes. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you.